Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. To beef or not to beef? That is the question. If Dario Cuccini or Richard Brennan have anything to say about it, the answer is always bring on the beef. On this week's episode, we sit down with the man who's been described as a personality, a celebrity, a theatrical host, a showstopper, and a butcher extraordinaire, Dario Cuccini. Dario was in New Orleans earlier this year at the invitation of restaurateur Dickie Brennan, whose son, Richard III, apprenticed with Dario in Tuscany. Richard gives us the lowdown on that extraordinary experience and how he hopes to use those newly acquired skills in the future. Then we visit Parisian butcher shop, Caractère de Cochon, for a taste of how the French do it. After all that cutting up, Jackie Blanchard of Coutelier joins us for an exploration of Japanese knife forging. Because, after all, what's a butcher without a knife? Where's the beef? It's all right here on this week's Louisiana Eats. In May of 2018, Dickie Brennan hosted Italian butcher Dario Caccini in his New Orleans restaurants for a meaty and amazing demonstration of deliciousness. Dario's visit was prompted by the hospitality he'd extended to Dickie's son, Richard III, during his apprenticeship in Panzano, a little village in Italy's Chianti region. After completing the coursework at the Culinary Institute of America, Richard Brennan knew he wanted to pursue the art of butchery. His CIA instructors agreed unanimously there was only one master for Richard to serve his apprenticeship with, the great Dario Caccini. We caught up with the butcher and his American wife, Kim, at Tableau. A Tuscan-style grilled feast was underway, utilizing the Louisiana Wagyu beef Dario had butchered before a crowd of chefs and food professionals the day before at Dickie's Steakhouse. Dario's butchering event was a hit, and the Italian butcher was still in rare form. Dario doesn't speak English, but his lovely wife was on hand to provide perfect translation. Carne! To beef or not to beef? In the interest of time, whenever practical, we'll be presenting Kim's translation of her husband's words as a voiceover. Il mio nome è Dario Cicchini. Macellaio. So what he just said was, my name is Dario Cicchini, butcher. Ah. <laughs> My name is Kim Ma. Cicchini, Bene. wife of butcher. 
Yes. And other things. We are so honored and thrilled to have you all here in New Orleans. So welcome, welcome, and thank you for making this time to sit down with us. I would love if we could begin by you telling me what you know about your family's beginning in Panzano. How did the butcher shop come to be in the first place, and how long ago? Sono nato nel 1955. Sono nato nella casa I was born in 1955 in uh, my small family home that is 10 meters from our butcher shop. Ero il primo genito e la prima persona che So I was the first born son and they tell me that the first person I saw as soon as I was born was my father standing there in his butcher whites. Da quel momento ero un predestinato. Probably from that moment, I was predestined. Ero I was predestined to be the eighth generation of butchers in the town of Panzano in Chianti. The eighth generation of Cecchini family butchers for a total of about 250 years. Nella stessa macelleria. In the same shop. I was taking my place behind the butcher shop block that my father had manned, my grandfather and my great-grandfather before him. I still work at that same butcher's block uh, for the last 44 years and every single day of the year. Seven days a week. We don't take any breaks. We are not closed any day of the year except Christmas Day. I love my work. I started it in a rather rough moment. I was on my way off to university studying veterinary science, but my parents passed away very young. And I was just 19 when I found myself with my entire family on my shoulders, what was left of my family, my little sister and my grandmother. I didn't know how to be a butcher, but I was stubborn, as I still am, and I had and have great passion for life, for my work. I think probably my path in life has been a rather romantic one to become a good butcher in order to honor the tradition of my family. Maybe I have just about become one. <laughs> well, I would say that perhaps you just have. You have taken everyone's breath away who has seen you knife in hand. I'd like for you to take us on a virtual trip to the butcher shop. Il, uh, Our village uh, of Panzano in Chianti is, is tiny. There are not even 1,000 people living there, but it's tiny with a big heart. It's at about 500 meters on the top of the highest hill in the area. La macelleria non è grande. It's a small butcher shop. It's truly a traditional butcher shop that belonged to my father and my grandparents before him. As you walk in, you'll see a triumph of meats in the counter on the left. On the right, you'll find a table. It's about 12 feet long, and it's filled with foods that you're welcome to enjoy. One of the young people working with us will probably approach you and say, welcome, would you like a glass of wine? 
L'importante è pensare It's important from my point of view that a client, before they become a client, feel that they are a guest. This is an idea most close to my heart. We're happy to talk about advice for a cut of meat. We're happy to know that they're joining us for a, a lunch or a dinner. Pranzo o una cena. E' il nostro stile di servire il cibo. Because that's our way of il nostro, il nostro modo di Our way of honoring the animals that have given their lives for us to, to dine is to offer a seat at our table at uh, the same price for everyone, the same menu for everyone, the same hospitality for everyone. There's always uh, music playing in the butcher shop. We have gone through periods of classical music, of opera. Right now I'm uh, in an ACDC phase. <laughs> Now, Dario, you touched on what makes your job so special. It has to do with the lives of the animals. And in the world today, people are believing more and more that they should be eating animals less and less. You vedo. I've seen that in our world today as we move towards more and more industrially raised meat, people are choosing to eat less and less meat. Tainting meat for the community has always fallen onto into the hands of butchers. It falls on us to maintain the memories of this job and to take responsibility for killing so that the community can eat. So our first responsibility is toward the animals before the responsibility that we have to provide good food to our clients, our humans. It's pretty easy concept, it's pretty simple. We just need to keep our animals happy, give them a happy life. We need to let them live the natural life that they would live. That means they're outside, they're eating grass. And at that point, to sacrifice the animal is something that actually um, makes sense. And I take the responsibility for this act. In our two restaurants, uh, we also have a menu that I, I say is a menu of respect. It's a vegetarian menu because respecting the free thinking of our fellow humans is something that's important to me. But I am a natural carnivore. It's not that I am against the industrial raising of meat. I just feel that an artisan needs to tell their own story. My story is my work. I'm not a politician, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not religious. I just try to explain that my idea is that taking responsibility in this manner makes a better world for all of us. It's better for the animals who live better ed è migliore per gli umani and better for the humans che hanno un cibo più sano e senza dolore who end up with a healthier food that is not full of pain voglio mangiare animali felici i want to eat happy animals me too <laughs> se, se, se devo rinascere mucca i'm convinced that uh, if i am reborn i will come back as a cow 
<laughs> non vorrei finire in un fast food. And I do not want to end up in a fast food restaurant. Vorrei un buon macellaio. <laughs> I'd rather fall into the hands of a good butcher. <laughs> It is common knowledge that the shoemaker's children have no shoes. And so it follows that the butcher's children eat no steak. I was particularly charmed by this impression you had of animals as a child because of the pieces parts that you saw coming home your grandmother cooking with there. I grew up eating what one might refer to as the less noble parts of the animal. Head and trotters and blood and tripe. My grandmother cooked all of these parts and with recipes that were incredible. I can't tell you how many times I have realized that my clients are sitting happily at the table, happily amazed by the flavors in the food, and doubly amazed when they learn what cuts they're eating. I hear them reply to me that you have uh, opened my eyes, you've changed my way of thinking. Here I am enjoying a lovely dish that I previously would have thought maybe only my dog would enjoy gnawing on this particular bone. I'm not looking to, for a revolution, it's not something I can do. I just look each day to maybe change one person's point of view. I believe in free thinking, but I think that our free thinking needs to be um, not only free, but responsible as well. Dario and Kim, thank you so much for spending this time with us and sharing your amazing wisdom and knowledge with my Louisiana Eats listeners. I'm so grateful for this opportunity and I will see you one day in Panzano. We count on it. We really do. Ma io spero che vengano che lei sarà sempre la benvenuta. Probably you're going to be welcome anytime, any day, along with all of your listeners here in Louisiana. I feel that I have found a um, an enthusiasm and a warm-heartedness and an extravagance in the people here that I'm not going to soon forget. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Dario Cuccini, Italian butcher from Panzano, Italy, and his wife, Kim Cuccini. Coming up next, we'll get a first-hand account of what it's like to apprentice with the master when Richard Brennan III joins us after a short break. Holy cow, what you doing, child? Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill, 
home of the award-winning barbecue oyster Poor Boy, and nine varieties of fresh gulf fish, caught and served daily. Lunch, dinner, and private events at 115 Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. just joining us, we were visiting with world-famous Italian butcher, Dario Caccini. Dickie Brennan's son, Richard III, recently served as apprentice to Dario in Panzano, and I couldn't wait to hear his point of view about his time there. We wrested him away from the huge Tuscan grills burning in Tableau's courtyard, and then we tucked into a quiet spot on the third floor to talk. I am Richard Joseph Brennan III. Uh, I am a, uh, a trained chef and uh, inspiring butcher. Aspiring butcher. Well, you certainly learned from the best. And you are the bird dog who went and found Dario Cuccini for your dad. Tell us about how you found Dario. Um, it was truly just a, a fortunate uh, coincidence. A guy that uh, was a instructor, a chef instructor at the CIA in California. I worked with him a little bit after school, and one day at lunch, you know, he was asking me about where I wanted to go after. And uh, you know, I was like, "Well, am I shooting for the stars here, or you know, realistically?" And you know, he's like, "Shoot for the stars." And I threw out Dario Caccini's name, and he said he happened to know him. Now, how did you know about him? I just out of, you know, research over butchery. Uh, he just, is the meat god. Right. I mean, he is the philosophy of the art. He carries such incredible respect from all stages. I mean, it's, a, it's truly hard to not admire if you are striving to be a butcher. So he says, I know him. Yeah. And so what, did, what happened next? Well, <laughs> I was out there doing a stage at the French Laundry, and while I was doing that, I was not getting emails back for a little bit because they are so busy. They are in and out. You know, Dario travels almost every other weekend to go and do talks and butcher demonstrations. So there was actually about a, a five month period where I just was sitting there, you know, wondering if I was going to go or not. Um, I actually was starting to look into flights to just show up there because <laughs> <laughs> we had, you know, had some connection. But then finally they came back and were like, Richard, Sorry, we um, we just got through a busy season, and we are opening up um, some position for stage. Can you come for these? You know, this time. And originally, it was supposed to be just for two months. And uh, you know, once I got there, just really, I was so blessed to um, really connect with them. So that you know, they're fortunate enough to ask me to stay for longer, and it was a great four and a half months. And where did you stay? Tell me. <laughs> I tell couldn't. Me I couldn't have got any closer to the action. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where do where do the young apprentices stay? How does it go? Um, traditionally, he places them right above the restaurant in an apartment. I mean, it, like I say, I couldn't get closer. I, even when I was trying to go to sleep, I would still hear you know a jazz band kick off at the restaurant, and I would have to open the window or just run over there and go hang out. So I mean, you, it's always in the action. And for a town of seven hundred, I mean, it's incredible how much fun you're having constantly. Uh, those Italians didn't know how to live life. What was the first thing you saw Dario do 
that blew your mind that you had <laughs> never imagined or seen done before in person yes okay that's an easy one the first five minutes i showed up to the shop it's about midday right when they're just getting done with their lunch service and if you've ever been there you would know and i'll explain that they're always having a good time right so you know a lot of things going on a lot of commotion and i don't know how but you know dario saw me coming up the the street and you know immediately starts chanting and i had this huge crowd of like 50 people turn around just staring at me and i'm just you know kind of like what the heck's going on but excited as can be and uh he immediately you know grabs me hugs me starts carrying me through the crowd all the way through this just chaotically packed up butcher shop that people are drinking wine and eating you know pork fat that's this birdie chianti on a crostini i've just seen so many things and he walks me all the way to his cooler in the butcher shop and uh he uh, walks me in and he says welcome you know welcome to my world and he cuts down a sausage uncooked the day he said that they had just piped the, that morning and uh he gives it to me and i expect us to go to the grill right go grill it and i've started to like head out the cooler and he's like no and he immediately just bites it raw and just starts eating this raw pork sausage <laughs> yeah you'll remember I was that so torn between <laughs> being like this is incredible but also i've never in my life been allowed necessarily i mean we we can't We've serve that been told we're no. gonna have trichinosis right <laughs> So, I mean, you ask, like, what was the, you know, incredible, in that first moment, I just, the tone was set. There's no true rules when you truly understand what is happening. It's kind of one of these things where, like, you've been taught so many things, but, you know, how much further can you go? I mean, it, they're not reinventing the wheel. All they're doing is just doing a, a practice of, I know where that pig's coming from. I'm very close with the farmer. I treat it in a way where I know what it's eating. I respect it in the process of its growth, and then the slaughter, and then the preparation. I mean, he has the comfortability of grabbing that sausage and eating it. Yeah, I believe in it. You must have learned um, ancient European butchering techniques that nobody's maybe ever seen at the CIA. Things that right. I find that so often technology and advancements we forget the old ways and it often turns out they're the best ways exactly i couldn't agree with you more you go away and you learn things uh to bring back uh, that was the blessing that i got from my parents and uh, my elders when they pushed for us to leave new orleans was not to desert it and not to not leave and come back but to go and see things that you can return with and bring them back. Sure. Go learn all that good stuff and right. please come back. And then it makes you appreciate where you come from even more, too. Oh, man, I've been eager to get back. Even though I've been enjoying it as much, I miss my home. Now that you're home, what have you brought home? How are you lighting fires in New Orleans and changing <laughs> things? Like you said, not reinvent the wheel trying to go back a little bit to spark interest and motivation to these people that are thinking of this nose to tail movement. Um, and, uh, and that that's said in a very, uh, I guess, broad statement, but in the regards to, you know, the bigger things like the beef and the pork, uh, facility wise, it, you know, we've, I think as a country relied so long on the middleman to get that process, you know, more efficient for us. Where in our group, we're trying to head more towards the connection with the farmer. 
now that you have the experience of being in Italy and you're back in New Orleans working with American animals, what are some of the differences that you're observing in just basically what you have to work with? It's a great question. So from first sight, the things that I've, you know, picked up on is the idea of the farm and how they live their life as cattle do. Um, you know, the idea of just grass is true over there. I mean, the cattle that Dario uses in particular are cattle that live out in the mountains right outside of Barcelona in Spain that go to slaughter only a kilometer walk away from where they live most of their life. It is just true bliss. I mean, if I was a cow, I would want to be out there, basically. <laughs> you know, they, they have it right. And I think that a lot of the new, you know, new practices that we see in America are striving for that. You know, just that idea of a stress-free life results with good beef. Absolutely. Any animal. Same pork. It makes total chicken, sense. Everything. And, you know, I think that the more, like we talk about, the people are interested in what they're eating and knowing where it comes from naturally that process will continue for us uh it's just people like you know in my position and people you know around the country that care about giving that to the people it's our job to make that happen so between the farmers between me as you know as a butcher and a chef it, we can give it to them but it's a slow process when you dream about the future <laughs> what do you dream about richard brennan the oh, third I dream of a very similar thing that Dario has. I dream, like, you know, like when I first had the discussion of going to work with Dario, with um, Chef Lars, who connected me with him, I, I saw Dario's operation and I just said, that's what I would like. I just love the idea of having that relationship directly from the farmer to my own facility, to where I can break it down in the way that I can send to our restaurants and then also sell to the public. In that way, you know, the idea of people getting, you know, starting to understand where there's things are coming from, we can really educate and also have an option just so people want it. I'm striving something that I love and I find that there's a need for it and ways of, you know, like I say, there's a need for developing in that area in our country. I'm very excited about what is to come. Richard Brennan III, a Tableau restaurant in Jackson Square. that European butcher talk got me thinking about a trip I made to France in 2015. That summer, I packed up my recording equipment and went rogue, making Louisiana Eats radio on the streets of Paris. For the radio. Included in my many adventures was a food tour I took with American Jennifer Greco. Well, my name's Jennifer, and I give food tours for a company called Paris by Mouth. Paris by Mouth offers three hour-long walking tours that introduce people to different neighborhoods in the city and the great food to be found there. That day, Jennifer and I strolled around the Marais neighborhood, visiting bakeries, chocolatiers, and spice shops. 
My favorite stop, though, was a tiny little ham and charcuterie shop. So small, you could walk right past it if you weren't paying attention. The shop is called Caractère de Cochon, a play on words that means pig-headed, in the same sense that we use that expression to describe a particularly stubborn individual. So this is Caractère de Cochon, and I jokingly refer to it as a temple of ham because when you come in here, you're honestly surrounded by air-cured hams, cooked hams, and then all of these beautiful dried sausages that come from all over Europe. Solo, the owner, has gone all over. He's collected some really interesting things here. Many of them are very rare, very small production, and very difficult to find outside of the region that they're produced in. So he has hams that are from Italy. They're wrapped up in grape must. Grape must is the leftover stems and seeds and skins after the grape pressing. So they hang these hams for a couple of years and they wrap them with this grape must and it imparts this lovely fruitiness into the ham. He has another one that is a certain breed of ham called uh, the Noir de Bigorre. And they eat nothing but acorns their entire life. And then they age these hams for about four years. So you get this incredible nutty flavor. So if you've only ever had a prosciutto or a serrano type ham, these will blow your mind. And one of the coolest things he has in here, it's under this glass dome here. It looks like meatballs. It does look like meatballs. It is a cured sausage meat that is full of little bits of truffle from France and then covered in Parmesan cheese. It's called a snowball. <laughs> in English, it's not a boule de neige, it's called a snowball. And I've never seen them for sale anywhere else. And they actually come from Austria. It's a, like a sausage, a cured sausage meat that you would slice like a pepperoni or a salami. So you just slice it thinly and eat it and it has the really wonderful flavor of truffle, but not too truffly. As Jennifer pointed out some of her favorites, the shop owner, who simply goes by the name Solo, greeted us and began to give us a tasting tour of his amazing display of meat. This one has a vein of... Oh, ça c'est truffle. Oui, alors, this is a ham with truffle. Right. And this is a culatello with truffle. What is the difference? What is the difference between ham and culatello? The, cool, the, the ham is a leg. Okay. From here to here. The thigh, we'd say, yeah. And this is a pump. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Culatello in Italian. Is, in Italian is a boom boom. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's the rear end. It's the rear end. Voila. So, That's the difference between when they say, when they say it's culatello, it's not ham. It's not ham. Okay. Culatello is only from That's the, the, the high part. Right. The, voilà. Yes. Et là, nous avons this is a fascinating one. It's voilà. wrapped in hay or straw. Voilà. And then they, cor is it Armagnac or Cognac? Uh, Armagnac over it. And they light it on fire. Incredible. This is very particular because it's a specialty from Corsica, the south of uh, the island, the famous island in Italy. It's made of uh, all the leaves from the pork. Leaves, on dit? Leaf. The, fat. the liver? Liver. The, the liver. Okay, the or the liver. Le foie. Okay, the liver. The liver. And uh, they smoke them. Oh, wow. And they add some uh, maigre de porc. Comment on appelle maigre de porc? Um, pork fat. Maigre? Uh, maigre. Maigre. It's non-fat. Oh, non like non like non-fat. It's, it's like uh, bacon, but the 
the, the other part of the bacon more more meat and no more fat. Okay. Maigre. Maigre is thin. So it's not big junk, by giant chunks of fat. It's, voilà. It's meat with a little bit of fat to add that soft, unctuous texture. Voilà. Okay. You need fat everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So in your entire shop, what do you think you have today that is the rarest that no one might ever see? The beef ham. Ah. The beef ham is uh, is it's uh, it's done yesterday. Yeah, yesterday, <laughs> last <Not> year. Yesterday. <laughs> it's like yesterday. <laughs> it's last months. year, and oh. it's vintage ten months, and it's from also the la cuisse. The thigh. Ah. Voila. Well, I think we just have to buy a lot of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a visit to Caractère de Cochon in Paris's Marais neighborhood. I'll make it back there one of these days. Aucun Boeing sur mon transit. Aucun bateau sous mon transit. What about the uncured pork sausages you may encounter in Europe? Can you safely eat that? Stay tuned. And we'll talk about that when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarans. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcasts yet? Visit poppytooker.com to subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What about the uncured pork sausages you might encounter in Europe? Can you safely eat that? While most Americans run screaming from rare pork, as we heard earlier from Richard Brennan, he was transformed by the experience of tasting Dario Cuccini's fresh pork sausages raw. This practice is very commonplace in northern Italy, where you'll find something on menus called salsiccia crudo. Salsiccia crudo is fresh raw pork, removed of all connective tissue, then finely chopped and highly seasoned before hanging to cure for a couple of days. The butchers and chefs who prepare this are well acquainted with the life of the pig before he was turned into sausage. They're quite aware of every bite that pig consumed, even when foraging. So the chance of ever coming across that trichinosis worm in Europe is little to none. 
In fact, trichinosis is almost a thing of the past, with fewer than 10 cases reported from eating pork annually in the U.S. But I'm not recommending you start perfecting your pork tartare. As we move increasingly away from consuming industrialized farm animals in the U.S., that pork tartare or salsicha crudo may be in your future, even on this side of the pond. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. My name is Jackie Blanchard. I am the co-owner of Coutelier here in New Orleans and our new shop in Nashville, Tennessee. Most Americans are pretty lucky if they can trace their ancestry back a hundred years. Impressively, Jackie Blanchard can trace her Cajun ancestors back 300 years. But even Jackie's heritage is just a blip on the radar when we're talking about traditional Japanese knife forging. Some families in Japan can trace their knife-making history back 700 years. We visited Jackie at her shop, Coutelier, in New Orleans' Riverbend to learn how she managed to forge relationships with Japanese master knife-makers so that she could import these rare knives into the U.S. Jackie, Coutelier is such a fascinating place. I could spend days in here. Well, in fact, I almost have. Tell us how you became interested in Japanese knives. Well, I think it all started for me. Uh, I was cooking professionally my entire life. Uh, I'm still cooking. Went to culinary school and found a chef who introduced me to Japanese steel and thought that the quality was just superior to a lot of the Western-style knives like the Henkels and the Wustoffs of the world that I had been accustomed to. They were lighter. They were a little bit sharper. They were thinner and performed a little bit better for me. I have a smaller stature at smaller hands. And when you're in culinary school, you're kind of given this knife kit that doesn't really fit everyone. So I felt my knife skills were kind of suffering uh, because I wasn't using the right knife. It was something that was too big for me. So uh, I started to you know, look more into Japanese steel. And the more I researched it, the more I found that not just in any uh, knife-making aspect, but in the craftsmanship in general, in any type of craft of Japan, the diligence and dedication to that craft is so much higher and, and denser than in any other craft in the world. So for me, it was about the craftsmanship and the history of a lot of these families that started out, you know, making samurai swords often enough. 17 generations, some of these families had been making knives, making swords, and all of a sudden, this time period came along. Uh, which is about the same time frame of, as our Civil War, uh, the late 1800s, and these swords were no longer uh, legal. So um, they started transitioning into kitchen cutlery. And what you now have is these families who have transitioned into cutlery, and a lot of their sons didn't take over because 20 years ago, Japan's economy wasn't booming in knife making. It was booming in cars, electronics, plastics, things like that. So those sons felt that they had no incentive to carry on for their fathers. So oftentimes you find these families are losing a generation and sometimes it will die with the father. 
because the sun didn't take over. So that's sort of something we're dealing with now. And so our part in this, besides just knife making, uh, we really want to support that this continues on because it could be lost, just like any old world craft. Jackie, one of the things that I love about your shop and the knives is that every knife has a story behind it. So if you would, take us on a little tour and tell us about the people who inspire you to bring these knives into the United States. All right, let's take a spin. So here we have Shosui Takeda. Takeda is one of our favorite knife makers. He's from a town called Nimi in the Okayama Prefecture of Japan. He is a third generation master blacksmith. Uh, what is intriguing for us about him is the aesthetic. Obviously, you see is you know extremely kind of barbaric in a way, which is a great thing for us because it's a very old world look and style of his knives. These knives are so beautiful and completely unusual in that they're black. The blades of the knives are almost black. Why is that? So that black finish is called Kurochi, and Kurochi roughly translates to blacksmith's finish. So oftentimes you will find knives that are extremely well polished and they're shiny and they're beautiful. So this black finish, Kurochi, is sort of a byproduct of the quenching process, which is a part of the final heat treat where they quench the blade in oil, pull it out, and you're left with this black sort of carbon residue. And back in the day, originally, that was to protect the knife from oxidation because it was carbon steel underneath. So any type of oxidation would you know, lead to rust or, or tarnishing, things like that. And so the blacksmiths would keep these for themselves. They just wouldn't take that extra step to polish it for themselves. So they would keep these, and over the years, these would sort of fade and get really beautiful in this patina sort of way. It sort of changes with you. There's a slight fade aspect to the black finish. Um, so you will see like the character build as you use the knife over the years. And I think that was one thing that really attracted us to his knives to begin with. And then we found out about him and his story. Tell us about him. Shosui was actually not supposed to take over for his father's forge. He was the second oldest brother. Uh, things fell through with his oldest brother, and his father basically said, you know, now this is yours. Well, when Shosui was in high school, he didn't anticipate that this was, you know, his path, because it was his older brother's path, so he was a little bit more of a rebellious type. He skipped his high school graduation to go see Bob Dylan in Tokyo, which I thought was very cool at the time. Uh, this is a very taboo thing to do in Japan, especially if you're from a very small town and part of a family heritage like theirs. Uh, so his family almost disowned him <laughs> because of that. But then, you know, he took a turn for the serious factor of taking over the family. Um, that was very important for him to do it right. So he kind of lost his, you know, childhood rebellion, kind of took over the forge, and this was about 40 years ago. And so now his son, Akita, is taking over for him as well. Which knife maker here in your store has the longest history? So I think that would be Moritaka. And Moritaka is out of Kumamoto, Japan, which is where we're traveling this summer to meet them. They've been around since the 12th century. They started in Fukuoka. And, and Fukuoka and Kumamoto are in the same uh, Kyushu Island, very southern island in Japan, off of the main, uh, mainland. So they started making samurai swords, like many did. They transitioned about 200 years ago 
into kitchen cutlery. And as you can see, their style is very old world. You know, there's not a lot of, you know, dainty aspects to these knives. They're full carbon steel. They've got that black Kuroshi style finish uh, that we talked about earlier. And they're just an old world process. You know, they haven't changed hands. They've been in the same family for all of these years. And I think that they're a very special house that we have access to. And it took us a long time to get them to work with us. Jackie, explain the difference to us between a Western-style handle and a Japanese-style handle. What are the benefits? What's, what's the difference? That's a really great question. And I think that's something that people often forget is a huge factor in decision-making when you're going and buying a knife. So I think all of us are used to that Western-style handle, and we've all seen that handle. It's a black handle, resonated. It's got three bolsters, and it's got a full tang. And the tang is the part of the knife that goes south of the bottom of the blade. So when you're handling a knife, a full tang means that bottom part of the blade comes all the way through the handle. Now, that's a Western-style handle. Now, in a Japanese-style handle, the tang only goes into the handle about three-quarters of the way. So you're never going to have a center balance, per se, on a Japanese-style handle because a lot of that weight is now forward in the blade itself. And so with Western-style handles, you have these riveting, you have the bull tang, and all of that creates a center balance, which I think we all got used to and we all kind of look for knives to be a center balance. That's not necessarily always the best case. I like a knife that has a little bit more of a forward weight. I prefer a Japanese handle because I like the blade forwardness because I think that guides the knife to do the work for me. Also, what you find is that with the Western handles, they're going to be a little heavier because you have this extra metal. You have the bolster, you have the rivets, you have the full tang, you have a, a composited resonated handle. Uh, with the WA style, and that's what we call Japanese handles, a WA handle, W-A, uh, come in various shapes, octagonal, oval, and a D shape. Uh, those are the three main shapes you will find in a wooden style WA Japanese handle. And they will be lightweight. And so what you find also, besides the blade forward aspect, you will find that it's much lighter weight in your hand in general. So that leads to a little bit more enjoyability because it's less compounding on your wrists. So generally, your favorite is a Japanese-handled knife. In general, yes. I like an octagonal handle. I think it's more ergonomic to the shape of your hand. If you look at, you know, kind of how your hand curls, it's more of that octagonal shape. Now, tennis rackets are octagonal underneath the tape. Some hockey sticks are. It's all for a reason. Um, it's a little bit more ergonomic. Not to say that I don't use a Western-style handle at all. I've got some of those at home still, but I, you know, moving forward into this world that we're in now, uh, definitely have adopted into using uh, the WA-style handles, which I love. We have a lot of people who come in and they really want a heavier knife because that's what they're used to. And I think we're all a little used to heavier German-style, European-style knives. Uh, and then they get very excited when they pick up a Japanese wa-style handle, and they're like, wow, this is such a lightweight knife. I didn't know that this could be so light. And sometimes they'll associate that with low quality, which is not the case at all. Um, but we want to make sure that it's the right fit for you, so we want you to hold it. We want you to feel it. And that's something that you can't get online. And we know that some of these have a higher price tag than what most people are used to buying in a knife. Uh, but we often say some people play golf and they spend thousands of dollars on golf clubs and they play once or twice a year. Now, if you're a serious home cook, you don't have to be a professional. But if you're a serious enough home cook 
and you're cooking three or four days a week, to have that one or two go-to knives that you know every time is going to be the right fit for you, it's going to be sharp, you don't have to fight against it because it's dulling out fast, you know, that is part of the investment, you know, for the rest of your life, you're going to have it. And if you take care of it, just like you take care of anything else, you take care of the cast iron, you're going to hand it down, and it's going to last. That was Jackie Blanchard, co-owner of Coutelier. Visit Jackie and her partner, Brant Cox, at their New Orleans location or the latest Coutelier in Nashville, Tennessee. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you'll find our full broadcasts along with our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting right from your computer or smartphone. Louisiana Eats is also available from iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, Camellia Brand Beans, and from Don Seafood, where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don Seafood at one of their six Southern Louisiana locations. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Dickie Brennan's Steakhouse, a local New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans' French Quarter. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>